hey folks, uh, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. With me today are Robert Laplander and Alexander Curran, two members of the Doughboy MIA team, uh, amongst other hats they wear. Uh, so this is a quick episode that we have put together to talk about our recent trip to France and a couple of the reasons behind it. Uh, you, know, you folks know who I am already, um, and I will let these gentlemen uh, introduce themselves. Rob and Alex, welcome to the show. And Rob, uh, if you would go ahead and just start us off. Can you, you've been on the show a couple of times already at this point, but can you go ahead and introduce yourself again? Uh, Robert Laplander, most people know me as that Lost Battalion guy. Uh, wrote the books on the Lost Battalion. We lead tours, Mike and I, together of uh, the Muse Argonne with a special emphasis on what happened in the 77th Division. I'm also the managing director of Doughboy MIA, which we'll talk about in just a moment. All right. Alex? Awesome. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Alexander Curran. Um, I've always had a huge interest in history, uh, especially military history. Uh, that came along from my, my grandfather, who was in the uh, Second World War over in the Pacific. Um, it wasn't until a few years before the centennial where I, I really uh, got a huge interest in the First World War. Um, and then from there, it began into collecting, uh, all sorts of different things. Um, I love research. So, um, I, you know, it's right up my alley. Um, and also, uh, missing service members have a huge, uh, you know, piece of my heart. So everything kind of fell together. Um, I'm the newest member of Doughboy MIA, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, looking forward to all the great things that are currently happening and uh, will be happening, uh, you know, the upcoming year and, and beyond. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. So there's a lot of talk about Doughboy MIA. Folks who follow the podcast, you may have seen some, some posts on Facebook um, just related to it. Um, so this was the trip's main objective was a, a little bit of a recon for uh, Doughboy MIA. So, Rob, if you would, can you tell us a little bit about Doughboy MIA and what we're trying to, uh, to accomplish here? Doughboy A originally started uh, around 2006, 2005 or 2006, when my wife and I got interested in trying to find uh, one of the missing in action soldiers from the Lost Battalion. And that blossomed into uh, the discovery that there are still 4,423 missing Americans in World War I. And we decided we wanted to find out what happened to some of these guys and if there would be a possibility of using today's technology to go out and try to find them. Um, between 1919 and 1934, the Gray's Registration Service went to great lengths to try to find the missing in action and identify sets of remains um, to largely to no avail. They did a great job with what they had, but by 1932, they decided they were going to start closing cases and they systematically closed all the cases between then and 1934. They took one last look, but with no other options, you know, there was nothing they could do. So they closed the cases and nobody's looked at them since then. Um, of course, now we have better technology. Um, the computer has made it easier for us to find information, uh, to collate information and to try to tie the, the ends together and the pieces together, whereas they did everything with paper forms and shoeboxes full of index cards. So the team came together in 2015 at the, uh, uh, at the suggestion of Chris Christopher, who works with the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. They took us on as an official sponsor, official partner, and uh, 
put up the website and ever since then we've been gathering team members like young Alex here, uh, who is one of the latest team members to join. We do a lot of research. It's not just about finding the guys. It's also about telling their stories. What happened to the individuals? Our motto is a man is only missing if he's forgotten. And our job is to keep them being forgotten. The side bonus is if we can go over and we can find somebody and bring them home so much, the better. Um, we're fond of saying that, that see killed in action is uh, it's a fact. It's definite. Um, it's incontrovertible. Whereas missing is a cruel hope that floats above a sea of despondency, threatening to sink at any time. And it never does. Um, all these families died without ever knowing what happened to their loved one. And in many cases that carried over to today's generation, those families are still feeling it even 103 years later. So um, that's what we do. We try to bring a little closure if we can and keep their memories from being forgotten. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. The, the, the three of us here, we're, you know, part of Doughboy MIA, we have other members as well. Um, and the, the mission is to, to give a, an, an accounting for these, uh, for these, for these boys who, who were part of the AEF, um, who, who went over in 1917 and 1918. And just like Rob says, if, if we can initiate a, a recovery, we, we certainly will. Uh, but our, our big mission is to just to account for them, just to, to tell their story um, so that they can continue uh, re remaining present in our in our memory. I mean, now, they're still relevant individuals um, just because they've been gone this this long. And we all know that World War One is kind of a forgotten war. Um, and because of that, uh, these guys particularly were forgotten. We all know about, you know, the POW MIA organizations. Uh, primarily because of the work that they did with Vietnam. Um, most don't realize that there are over 85,000 still missing in action from America's wars from World War I on up. Um, and we're the only organization that actually looks for the U.S. missing in action from World War I. So there's many World War II groups and a few Korean War groups, a lot of Vietnam groups. We're the only ones that do World War I. Alex, you have a personal connection to this uh, mission, to this endeavor here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the case you have worked on for, for Doughboy MIA? Of course. There's, a, there's one case uh, that stands out to me. Um, it's very special for me. Um, and that's the case of Sergeant uh, John Curran. Um, Sergeant Curran is my great-granduncle. Um, his case is a little different from others um, for the fact that he was actually captured uh, wounded by the Germans um, uh, and, and buried by the Germans. And after the war, um, they, you know, the Graves Registration Service could not locate this grave. Um, so based off of, you know, research and uh, facts that we currently have, um, it, it's possible that he may still be in this same exact spot where the Germans placed him. Um, so during our trip, we got to have a, you know, a good meeting with the town council regarding uh, Sergeant Curran. We were able to present the case to them, um, inform them, um, you know, of what we intend to do um, if possible. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's a great experience to be able to work on a case of a, a family member. It's, it's very touching, um, especially to learn so much, you know, about someone in my family and, uh, 
you know, the, you know, the experiences that they had, we'll never be able to, you know, truly understand what they experienced, but to, to be able to work and, and, you know, try to get to that point, you know, I, you know, I want to know as much as I can. I think, you know, the personal stories are amazing for me, but to, you know, to solely work on a case regarding a family member is, it's, it's fantastic for me. Um, so it's very touching. And what, what are some of the, the, the details of, of uh, uh, Sergeant Curran. Okay, yeah, so so Sergeant Curran uh, was in the 316th Infantry Regiment. Um, early in November, the 316th Infantry were uh, engaged in heavy, heavy fighting uh, just north of Moldal Farm. Um, uh, just, I want to say it's a little bit east of Sivri Sur Muse. Uh, there's a huge hill. Uh, it's Hill 378. That was the main objective uh, for November 4th, 1918. Um, the Germans fortified this hill. Uh, if the Germans were, you know, stayed put on this hill, they could look across the, the entire Meuse Valley and, and direct precise artillery on, uh, on the AEF. So it was very important to capture this hill. Um, the 316th took about 825 casualties uh, in three days trying to, trying to gain this hill. Um, at some point during the fighting, uh, on November 4th, Sergeant Curran had been wounded uh, reportedly by machine gun bullets. Um, and also he had been captured, um, you know, within November 4th at this battle. There are about 51 other uh, Americans captured um, on this hill. Um, and as a side project, I've been putting together a list of, uh, you know, all these other service members that were captured on this hill. Um, but the, the story of Sergeant Curran is uh, there's lots of twists and turns. Uh, some things we don't know yet. Some things we may never know. Um, but he was, you know, he was wounded by machine gun bullets, uh, captured by the Germans and taken to a German field hospital where three days later, he, uh, unfortunately died of wounds. Yeah. Thank, thank you for, for sharing that. So folks, if you're not too familiar with, with the Meuse Argonne, um, Sivri sur Meuse, the, um, the village that, that Alex mentions and, and Moleville farm, those are on the, the, what we call the, the East bank or the right bank of, of the Meuse river. Um, so that was later on in, in the American Merzargon offensive. If you just go to Google Maps, focus on Verdun and just look north, you'll find Sivri sur Meuse and, and then Moleville Farm. And so that's you're talking like late November. Uh, well, late in the war, like November 6th, 7th time frame, um, 79th Division was was back in action. Um, now, Hill 378, is that the Corn Cornwilly Hill? Or really hill, yes. Uh, there's a uh, French called it. Uh, excuse my my French language. Uh, they called it La Bourne du Cornelier. Okay. Um, of, course, of course, the you know your your average American uh, can't pronounce this. Uh, yeah. So the the Doughboys started to call it Corn Really Hill, um, but officially officially it's Hill 378. Hill 378. Yeah. Excellent. All right. All right. Thank you. Let's see here. So yeah. So. Part of our trip, uh, you know, was was initiating contact with some um, lo- local French officials um, in, in, re- in regards to some cases, Sergeant Curran's case being one. And if you were watching the video version of this on the uh, quite neglected uh, YouTube channel for this podcast, um, if you look over uh, Alex's right shoulder is Sergeant uh, John Curran right there. So um, it's fantastic photo here it might be a little easier to see awesome thank you thank you yeah yeah young man right so this brings it this brings it very much alive um for us especially to to have a 
uh, uh, an ancestor, a, a relative here, you know, wor- working on a case and a, and a personal connection. Um, so this is this is fantastic. Yeah. So so this is what we've we've been working on. We're you know just making contact with folks, and and we hope to uh, continue the mission. Uh, ideally, I don't know about you guys, but I'm already fiendishly plotting for next summer. So I'm saving my pennies. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As soon as, uh, as soon as the dust settles a little and we've got, it's, we've added up the receipts and all that to find out what's left in the coffers for Doughboy yeah. MI, um, <laughs> there'll be another zoom call out where we start begging for money again. Um, folks remember that we are an all volunteer organization. Nobody's paid for any of this and everything we do is through public subscription. Uh, we don't take any government funding. Yep. Um, we are looking at some grants, uh, but that's, kind of stuff takes a long time to come in. In the meantime, in order to make ourselves move forward, uh, we put our hand out and ask a lot. Um, our big big campaign has always been called 10 for them. Uh, we asked for 10 bucks. And who can't give 10 bucks? I mean, you know, so we've done it $10 at a time and a couple of, you know, really nice donations is what paid for the trip, would put us over there. And gave us the chance to walk the ground on several of the cases, take a look, meet the French officials. Um, we put about seven miles a day walking on. And this is the very first trip that we've gone over that no one came home losing weight. Because <laughs> the French fed us and they fed us really well everywhere we went. So, Yeah, um, there, was, there was a couple of... Uh minimum like 8,000 calorie days. So um, it's yeah. usually I come home, I've dropped at least two inches off my waist and a good 10 or 15 pounds. Not this time. So yeah. (laughs) And as Alex will, will attest, um, he found out everywhere we fought, we fought uphill. So, yes, uh, yeah. it's definitely, uh, you know, I always read about the, the terrain that, you know, our, our doughboys were, were fighting against, but to, to finally be there and to, to walk that terrain was like, uh, it was, it was incredible for me, especially being from Florida. We're a very flat state. We don't have hills. We don't have mountains. And, and here I am in France and I'm trekking up, you know, hills and, uh, it was it was tough, but it was uh, it was very well worth it. And I also uh, have to say that I'm just a little early, but like we may as well launch ourselves into into the Argonne. Um, the weather uh, held out just long enough for us to get out into the Argonne, and then it turned into pretty much exactly what what uh, the the Doughboys faced. So I I think and Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, or or Alex here. Um, so the the Mers Argonne Offensive was 47 days. I believe, did it not rain for about 43 of them? It rained almost every day. that they, It started to rain that year about uh, September 16th, and it, it rained virtually every day somewhere along the front right up until the end of the war. Um, yeah. It was, it was unbelievably miserable. It was also very unseasonably cold. I've had a couple of conversations with some, some guys in the past about doing a meteorological assessment of what all that shell fire and the smoke and all that from the, from the battlefront did to the air in that area. Maybe that had something to do with creating a little bit of a different shift in the weather patterns. And one guy was very interested in it. I don't know if he, if he ever followed up on it, but uh, 
I think somebody could probably put together a really good thesis on that. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm that's certainly not my area. So we we got out there, um, and man, so Friday, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, here in here in the United States, um, we we took a a very special walk through the woods, um, and it was exactly as pretty what I always imagined how the Doughboys would have faced it. It was gray. It was it rained. And it stopped. It stopped long enough for, for us, uh, long enough for us to uh, take a walk through the woods. Uh, and it picked up again. And, um, and it was raw, just a raw, cold day where you actually wanted to move so that you could warm up. That that was always an experience. And I think it was uh, Rob. You said it yourself. Like, oh yeah, like this is an Argon day. <laughs> it's an Argon day. And there was plenty of mud. Yeah, there's yeah good mud sticking to the bottom of your shoes and. Um, I know a couple of you guys, when we were on the walk, um, in that ravine decided let's run up the hill and take a look at some positions up above. And, you know, it's, it's a track to get up the hill to begin with, but to do it on a day like that. And then like Alexander said, now picture doing it with a load of ammunition, a pack in your back, you're sick, you're tired. You haven't had enough to eat or drink for a week, you know, and, this is this is what you get. This is a, a taste of what they went through. So the the hill Rob is talking about is Hill Two Hundred Five, which is um, if you've listened to the uh, Lost Battalion episodes on the podcast, Hill Two Hundred Five is is very uh, uh, prevalent in in those uh, in those episodes. So it's at the it's at the junction of the uh, Argonne Ravine, the Haven d'Argonne, with with the Charlevoix Ravine, and that's one of the hills that the Germans held and just raised all sorts of hell for um, the 308th Infantry Regiment and the 77th Division. Um, so we, Alex, you went up that hill, yes? Yeah, I I, uh, I didn't think I was going to make it up. Uh, <laughs> I finally made it up, and then on my way down, I didn't think I was going to make it down. Uh, <laughs> So just to be able to go up that hill was hard enough, but then just to picture yourself, uh, now you're in war. It's just, it's, it's hard to imagine. Um, yeah. it's, it's definitely hard to imagine. And I, I feel the weather that day definitely, uh, it definitely set a mood. Um, but it was, uh, it was a tough, a tough hike up the hill, but I'm, I'm glad I got to do it. It was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. 60 degree slope folks. Um, we're lucky, you know, I mean, the, the ground was covered in leaves. Uh, everything was wet. So it made for a pretty slippery uphill climb. But um, I, um, I, I I want you guys here and, and listeners to know, like, this is not bragging. But I, um, I, I work out like three, four times a week uh, in the regular course of my week. Um, but just going up that hill, like I felt my heart was about to explode. So like, that's such a, like, I second that. <laughs> yeah, man. Like I was, I was actually like concerned because my, my daughter was with me and I was like, man, it's going to really ruin the trip if I have a heart attack right here on top of this hill. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> There's an awful lot of paperwork involved in that. I, I'm glad it didn't happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and how quickly can an ambulance get out to the middle of the woods? You know, because uh, I was. Yeah, you're looking at least an hour. <laughs> yeah, I was dying. At, at least. 
Yeah. Mike, can you hang on for an hour? You know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so, so that's, that's the kind of experience it was. And I mean, just as Alex said, like we were doing it in peacetime, you know, no, no pack, no, no rifle in your hands, not getting shot at. And uh, it was still, still really, really difficult. Just to backtrack a bit. So that Friday, really special day and, and folks, um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and throw in the pitch here that, uh, you know, lost battalion tours can uh, provide this very experience, right? Like, is that, is that shameless enough, Rob? Yeah. You too can suffer something of what the Doughboys did <laughs> and we can ensure that for you. <laughs> we can make it as bad as you like folks. <laughs> but the, so the, the day began where, where we, um, we met up with some with some French and Dutch friends in uh, in the the center of Bienarville, which uh, which you guys have heard on the podcast. Bienarville was uh, eventually captured by the American um, 368th uh, Infantry, uh, along with some some French units. Um, now Bienarville is to just to the west of the western edge of the Argonne Forest, so. Um, and it is just what is it like? Just southwest of uh, of um, Charlevoix Ravine. Wow. Um, so it was a good place for us to meet. Now from there, once everybody was together, we just drove into the Argonne Forest, and we um, we met up at we we started our walk at uh, at a hill that those of you familiar with the podcast will know is uh, La Morte, which is the site of Charles Whittlesey's uh, small pocket. Um, now, Rob, what was the reason why we were there? There's a very special thing going on that day. And, and it's really, really amazing that, that we all got to be a part of that. So I, I think I ever did, um, because we're friends and I'm rude. Um, but I, I really appreciate, uh, that, that we got to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, like, like I said in the beginning, most people know that I'm the lost battalion guy and, that means that there's a lot of stuff that I've had access to over the years. I've been researching the Lost Battalion for uh, better than 25 years now. So we've had access to a lot of things. And one of the things that came to light some years ago uh, that really made the difference in my book, as well as the very first book that was written on the Lost Battalion in 1938, was this diary right here. Uh, oh. This is the diary of a guy by the name of James Larney. Jim Larney was Whittlesey's signalman. He's the guy who carried the big panels that they laid on the ground to signal the aircraft. And um, he was by Whittlesey's side through the entire battle. Um, he trained with Whittlesey at Camp Upton, went overseas, was with him on the Val, uh, was with them in the Baccarat sector. Um, and when they went into the Argonne, he stayed right with them. Uh, and he started the diary when he hit the shores in France. It was against the rules um, to have a diary, to keep a diary at the front. And he managed to keep it, keep it secret. And when during the Lost Battalion incident, Whittlesey saw him writing in the diary because he continued to write this diary all the way through the entire battle. Um, Whittlesey saw him writing the diary and instead of confiscating it, he looked at him and he said, I want you to keep writing of that. Um, it'll make a good record of what happens here. The only part that we'll see left out was in case we don't get out. Um, and it has become one of the most poignant 
records of what happened. He, he kept detailed notes of every day that they were there, of most of the, the actions in and before the, the uh, Charlevoix Ravine in the small pocket, moving up the Ravine d'Argonne and moving into the pocket after he got hit twice in the pocket and he, they carted him out by ambulance. He went back to the uh, field hospital, La Chalade, where he was operated on the first time. Um, the diary came home and in the early 30s, Thomas Johnson, who wrote the first book on the Lost Battalion, got in touch with it and was given access to the diary. In conjunction with that, Larney's best friend in the pocket was a guy by the name of Walter Baldwin, who was in charge of the runners. And after Ben Gaedeke was killed, he became the 1st Battalion Sergeant Major. After the war, he wrote a manuscript uh, of his own called Was There Such a Thing in the Great World's War as a Lost Battalion? Um, and Tom Johnson at the height of the depression 1932 bought that manuscript for $200. He bought the rights to the manuscript. That manuscript and the diary became the basis for the 1938 lost battalion book. Now Johnson took uh, quite a few liberties with the stuff that was in there for some, some very good reasons. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dirt in there on specific people who didn't um, exactly you know, hold up the best and brightest image of America or some people who just couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. So in order to, to save some people from uh, embarrassment, in order to keep other people from suing him for libel, um, Johnson changed a lot of things, um, which, you know, by and large, the book still told the story in a general way. Um, Larney himself didn't care for the changes and, we were lucky enough to get a, a hold of his copy of the 1938 book where he had written in the margins everything that was wrong with it. Wow. And between that book and, and the diary here, um, we come up with a really clear view of what he saw. And since he was next to Whittlesey, he had the dirt on, you know, the, the straight scoop on everything. I had access to the diary when I was writing my book but I had access to transcriptions that were made by Larney's son, John. Um, John would never let the, the diary out of his possession. And with good reason. I mean, it's, it's a precious family heirloom. Mm -hmm. It's irreplaceable. Uh, the information in it is second to none, but John provided me with transcriptions of the most poignant episodes, the stuff that he could make out. Um, now you, you must remember he had this in his pocket the whole time. So there are some places where the, the rain and the mud got to it. Um, he had it in his pocket when he was hit. It, he had it in his pocket when he went through, you know, the, the medical situation behind the lines. So it's, it's pretty beat. And there, it was wet more than once. So he made out what he could. And when John died a few years ago, um, I was always kind of touched after my book came out, when you write a book, especially something like that, and you weren't there, you always wonder, did I good, do a good enough job? Um, did, I, did I really tell the story? Did I get it right? Um, and I remember one night, I got an email from John Larney. He had read my book, and he said, my dad would have approved, and he would have been proud of what you've done.
And after that, I, I went up to bed with my wife and I laid down and I told her, I'm not allowed to question the book anymore. So you can't get better than that, I think, as far as endorsement goes. John died a few years ago of cancer. Um, I stayed in contact with his family on and off. Um, and they had to search for his diary. He had it hidden. And uh, the family had to search for it. They found it in the back of a filing cabinet out in the garage. Oh. So um, they, uh, his, his widow has it, and uh, she's taken really good care of it. I got in contact with his granddaughter through the Facebook page that we have, Finding the Lost Time Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And I made the offer that I would like to transcribe the whole diary before it falls apart, before it's irreadable, you know, unreadable and stuff. And they agreed that that would be a good idea. Let's get everything down, photograph the entire thing, transcribe the entire thing. It's a great family heirloom. Um, So we made arrangements to have it shipped from Watertown, New York to Wisconsin. Uh, It was heavily insured. And we followed it for two days while it was in transit. We, we kept a real close watch, and there was a lot of sweat when it got here. We were very uh, pleased, and I started photographing it. We happened to mention to her one night online that we would be going back to France um, when we had the details for the Doughboy MIA mission hammered out. Um, and her husband actually said, wouldn't it be a great idea if they took the diary back to France where it was sort of born, go back to those places and bring the diary back there. Um, I was pretty much floored by the idea. So uh, we worked out the details and with the blessing of the family, that's exactly what we did. We brought the art, the diary back to the Val, to the Argonne. Um, we shipped it over in its own special case. It's waterproof and, and pretty sturdy. Nothing was going to happen to the diary. Um, And it made it there and back again for the second time, 103 years after it went the first time. Um, And it was very poignant to stand in the places that Jim Larney was when he wrote the diary, when, when he set all this down, particularly in the pocket, because he was right next to Whittlesey the whole five days. Um, and when the artillery barrage came in on the fourth, he was right there. He knows exactly what Whittlesey said, how he acted, what he did. Uh, the same thing with, uh, the surrender letter when the surrender letter came in on the seventh, did Whittlesey actually say go to hell? No, he didn't. Um, we know this for a fact because Larney was standing right there and he yep. saw the whole thing and he wrote it at the time, not days later, not weeks later at the time so it's it was a a wonderful experience to bring it back and to be able to share it with you know mike yourself and alexander and some of the other fellows that came with us um they got to see it there it's it's a it's a really poignant moment and as you know the ultimate lost battalion geek i mean who you know (laughs) what could be better you know yeah what a what a what an absolute gift that um, that that you could could shepherd it back 
uh, take it on a on a walk where we're like you said, like where it was born, and and uh, that that we, you know, Alex and I and and the others that that we could all be there for it. So um, that's pretty amazing, um, folks. If you look on um, on Instagram and on the Facebook page, I think on Twitter too, I've, I've posted a, a picture of of Jim Larney um, in, in his younger days uh, as a soldier, and then uh, the diary, uh, in Rob's hands in, um, in the Aragon forest. So, um, really, really something else. Um, so that just made for, for an amazing day, folks. So, like I said, we started at the, the small pocket where Whittlesey and, and his troops were surrounded for about two days, um, at the end of September. Um, and then we walked up the, uh, Havan d'Argonne, which they have a, um, now they have they have like a logging road there, so it's somewhat easy. Um, but it has been raining. It's been, like, like I said, it was a wet Argon day, so it was the mud was very muddy. Significant. <laughs> was that's, significant. Uh, that's, that's why you have that keyword somewhat easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was quite an experience, and it, it's really something to, to to walk through the woods and. Um, you know, I've, I've recognized, uh, that, you know, like when, when, um, I'm just going to go off to the side here. So like when, when, a, when a tree falls in the woods, you, you know, and it rips out the roots, you know, it, it leaves a, it leaves a crater. Um, and, and then the dirt eventually falls off the roots and it's creates like what's called a pillow and a cradle. Um, so whenever I take a walk in the woods here in Massachusetts and I see those holes, I'm like, you know, my first thought is always like, like, oh, those kind of look like shell holes, but they're not because there's another mound of dirt right next to them. Um, it's different in the Argonne Forest, folks. When you see a hole um, in the woods, in, in, an unnatural depression, uh, they, te- they tend to be very round, they large. Um, those are not naturally made. Those are not from fallen trees. Those are, those are shell holes. And it's, it's really like, if you look around, you can still very much see um, uh, the, the effects of World War I on the land. Um, and there are other effects um, as well, which, uh, which Alex could tell us about on, uh, on Cornwilly Hill, a little gift that nature brought up for him. Um, so I, when I went to Cornwilly Hill, I took, you know, I, t- I tried to take an accurate walk of what the 316th would have taken um, from their jump off line. So uh, I started from Mulville, Hill, Mulville Farm, excuse me. Uh, I went north. I, I cut across the left a little bit, and that found me uh, right at the bottom of the hill. And then from the bottom of the hill, I took my I, I took my walk up the hill. Um, of course, going up, you know, I looked to my left. Here's a you know here's a Mauser cartridge. You know, I walk a few more feet. Here's a you know a German uh, uh, undergarment button. You know, I, I go up the hill some more. I'm taking a break, trying to catch my breath, and I look to my right. There's a, a cap for a German stick grenade. So it's, it's 103 years later and it's, it's still, you know, relevant to this area. That's you can't deny, you know, it was not here because here we are 103 years later and stuff is still on the surface. Um, I finally made it to the top. And of course I look over and there's a, there's a dud just sitting right on the top of the hill. So that was a little scary. It was my first dud that I saw, but, um, yeah, there's, you know, the earth is just giving back so much. I mean, even for, you know, the battle on this hill only lasted three days, but just to, to think of all the material that, you know, was left on this hill and is still 103 years later, 
coming to the top. It was it was definitely uh, mind boggling. It's, it's certainly uh, pr- pretty sobering. Yeah, I mean, to you know, to encounter um, uh, an, an artillery shell. Um, but it's also, you know, it's also uh, like wow, like the amount of, of material. You know, when we talk about you know thousands of shells probably pounded into this hill, like that's one of them. You know, exactly. like that's still around. So um, very much, yeah. French French farmers in that area, uh, French residents in that area, like they they do live with that uh, ever present reminder. Um, you know, I, I know that they have their their ways of dealing with it. They have the the demineur teams that that will come and take that stuff away. But um, man, what what an extra an extra like layer to life out in that area that, yeah. that you have to uh, always consider. Alex, since since we're um, we have you here uh, talking, so this this was your first trip to France. Um, so what are like what? What are some of your your experiences? Some of your your observations? Like, what, what was it like, man? Especially like, pretty amazing. Like um, that that you went in in the middle of, of an ongoing pandemic. You know, and still saw your way there. So uh, the, the the pandemic definitely made things a little more uh, tricky. I would say um, you have to have a uh, like a COVID pass from the French government. You know. Um, either, you know, showing proof of uh, being vaccinated or showing proof of recovering from COVID within the last three months. Yep. Uh, so I didn't get my COVID pass until maybe two days before. So I was very helpful. I was very happy. <laughs> you know, I had put in for it uh, two months ago, but, you know, I got it just in time. So uh, my experience to France, it was, uh, I loved it. It was, you know, it was my first time really traveling, you know, and you know, I was out of this outside of the country. I was, you know, in a complete different area. I've never been to, I don't, I don't speak the language. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely eye opening. Uh, I definitely need to practice some more French for sure. Oh, yeah. uh, but overall it was a, uh, it was a beautiful trip. Uh, it's a beautiful country, beautiful area in the Meuse, uh, fantastic food. The food was excellent. Um, I was lucky enough to spend the last couple of days of my trip uh, with my dear friend Manon in Arras, and we had uh, traditional northern French food. And we had a fantastic dish called Welsh. Ooh. Which is, uh, it's a, uh, a bread base with uh, ham, tons of cheese, and uh, an egg on top. And it was, I had some of the best food I've ever had in my life there in France. So <laughs> that was definitely a plus. Definitely. And, wow. uh, the people were very nice. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience. Very. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it, man. I'm glad to hear you had such a good time and, and, um, Oh my God, that dish. I've got to, got to look that up. Um, yes. If you're ever in Arras, I highly suggest getting Welsh. It was. Welsh. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Rob, any, uh, I know this is, um, you know, not your first time, uh, over there, but still, Man, what was it like being back after, I think, three years for you? Yeah, it's um, seventh or eighth time over. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time, you know, moving between uh, the, the salient, the British area up around Ypres, and then on down into the Argonne area and covering what, you know, America did, where America fought. Um, I hadn't been there in uh, 10 years by the time we went over in 2018, I, the last time I'd been in, was on the 90th anniversary in 08. And then I went over in 18 for three weeks, uh, leading tours with the Center for Military History for the U.S. Army. 
and then a couple of private tours, a couple of weeks of private tours. Um, it was an eye-opening experience to see how much it changed. Now we go back three years later, and even more it changed. I was very shocked at how much things had grown up, um, how many changes there had been. Um, they have KFC in France now, which I do. Really? Okay. You know, we used to joke that the French gave us fantastic wine and cheese and art and music, and we gave them McDonald's, you know, and now we've given them, you know, KFC and Starbucks. Starbucks was in Paris. That's okay. Um, and then moving into the Argonne, it, things never change in the Argonne itself. And I think Mike, I think you can attest to this. Um, nothing ever changes. It's they're pretty much the same. Um, I think that's a good thing um, because the flavor of the area stays the same. They still remember what Americans have done over there, what they did a hundred years ago. They never forget. And they're always appreciative. Yeah, um, definitely. It wasn't until we got to Verdun and we saw the big changes. Verdun's grown up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's, Alex found his first shell. That's always an experience. Your first time coming across unexploded ordnance. <laughs> um, I have a great story that I tell about my wife. The first time she came across unexploded ordnance, and after that, never went in the forest again. Um, once you see it and you become accustomed to it, then you begin to see it everywhere, and you begin to realize um, how much of it there is still left over a hundred years later, and I, there's a lot. Yes. Uh, the estimate yes. is that 60 tons of junk comes up every year along the Western front that the earth just vomits up all this stuff that's left over. And they say that it'll be going on for at least another hundred years. Um, some of it is extremely dangerous. Some of it is, you know, a little more innocuous uh, cartridge casings. You find a lot of those, a lot of shrapnel, Yep, a lot of shrapnel balls, shell splinters, things like that. I can recall in 18 um, wa wandering into the woods off of a trail, uh, just, you know, uh, to use the, to take a leak basically. And I happened to look down and there's a, there's a shell laying there right at my feet. There was um, a shrapnel shell that had gone off. So it was, it wasn't live, Yep. but this stuff's just laying there. Um, uh, my son came along with us and he was photographing the whole thing and recording everything on video. He was very interested in seeing this stuff firsthand. He'd heard me talking about it all these years. Then he got to see it firsthand and it tightens you up a little bit to see that stuff laying there. Um, I know that there's a, a hand grenade that's in the pocket that uh, in 2018, it came rolling down the hill. It got dislodged and came rolling down the hill. And that was a little nerve wracking then. And we made sure that it got put into a place where it wasn't going to do any harm. So everybody got to see that again. Um, and it can put you on edge, even if you've been there before and you've seen it before. In 18, I had a baseball cap on and an acorn fell off a tree and hit the bill of my baseball cap. And I jumped about 18 feet in the air. It scared the daylights out of me. Um, and then when you look, there's, uh, they're doing a lot of logging over there because of the tree beetle problem. Yep. See those logs laying there on the side and you see the red marks 
where they had to wand the log before they dig into it with a chainsaw to try to find the shrapnel and the shell splinters that are still stuck in the logs. And then you wow. see them cut the logs on and you can see it in there. Um, and they, they call these witness trees or legacy trees. Uh, these were there during the battle. Uh, so that was, that was an eye-opening experience to see a lot of that stuff down and to see the trenches and the pillboxes yep. and the stuff that's still out there that you wouldn't ordinarily get to see because there was far too much vegetation. Um, it's very poignant. It's very pointed. There's that. There's a cemetery outside of Apremont that if you didn't know it was there before, you would miss it. Um, it was an ev- evacuated German cemetery. Now you drive past it, and there's the walls are right there, and you know the gates are right there. You can see the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yep, exactly, exactly that. Yeah, that's a very poignant sight, and it's it's wild to see the pictures of that uh, cemetery previously sitting in the. Um, amongst the trees and now it's it's wide open it's um yeah. it's a little sad to see the argon forest that way but i mean these are you know the acts of nature um you know the uh, the argon parts of the argon forest folks are currently experiencing a uh, a bark beetle infestation that's been going on for a couple of years so some pretty large chunks of the forest have been cut down because those trees are are diseased and and ruined so um yeah. They're doing their best to stop it. They, I, I, they had started it. They had just started it when we were there in 2018. And they had, there were some things that had been taken down, but they didn't realize the extent of it until uh, just a couple of years ago when they started to go to town full swing. And there's huge sections that are just completely gone. Mm. It's, and it is sad because it was a beaut- it's a beautiful forest. Um, yes. I grew up in northern Wisconsin, and my son even mentioned wow, this looks a lot like up north. You know, oh, we call it up north here in Wisconsin. He said, it looks a lot like the Nicolay National Forest. And he says, I feel like we're at home in some sections. And then you look down and you see an unexploded shell and you go, oh, yep, we're not at home. You're not at home. Very much, no. Very much, no. Um, yeah, folks. So this is like, you know, um, really awesome to be, to be back in the, in the Merzargon. Very, very grateful, especially to, to spend the, the time with um, Rob and his kids. I, I brought my daughter, uh, Alex, other, other folks, uh, Mikhail, uh, Martin, um, Christoph, all, all the folks who came out and joined us. Um, it, was, it was an excellent time. Really great to, to connect back with, with the land. Um, it, it is a cold area. It's, it's wet. It's raw. Just bundle up. It is what it is. Um, but I mean, you just know that even the, while you're out there shivering and freezing, you will be experiencing exactly what the Doughboys also experienced. So you can, I suppose that's cold comfort, but uh, you know. Well, <laughs> and it's, it's about taking away experiences too. And I think. That, yeah. I think that some of the experiences that I'll, I'll always remember this, the one that, will stick with me for the longest is the look on Alex's face as he stood next to that area where we believe his relative is buried. Yes. And he stood next to the building in which his relative died. Um, those are the kind of things that, that when you get into the Doughboy MIA work, that kind of makes it, makes it all worthwhile because you can see that the, the work actually does touch people. 
when you read through the burial case files and you read enough of them and you read enough of those letters from the families where they're saying, can't you tell me anything about my, my loved one, anything about them? Where did they go? They're just heartbreaking and it, it can really tear you up. And then you see someone 103 years later, never met this individual, but cares enough and see the look in their face and the tear in their eye as they're standing in that area. And you helped bring that about. I think that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And then, um, I got to meet Martin Ott and I have been trying to meet Martin Ott for years and we just never managed to cross paths. He's, he's a tremendous individual. Um, and, I was very heartened to, to find out that the two of us have so much in common, not just World War I, but music as well and things. It was, it was a wonderful experience being able to spend some time with him. Just a fantastic individual. And it was great to get into the forest with you, Mike. Yeah. To be there, the two of us. We had planned Lost Battalion tours. The first tour was put together, ready to go. And then COVID came, and that was the end of that. Yes, so, and I... I think, you know, like I, I myself definitely thought like, wow, we've sold this thing out by word of mouth in six weeks, awesome in six weeks, what could possibly go wrong? And, um, we very quickly found out. So, but yeah, Hey, 2022 is going to be the year folks. We are, we're getting back out there. So I, I, you know, everything willing, the, the situation, you know, pandemic starts to clear out where we definitely want to get, get you folks out there. Um, so that is our, that's our plan. That is our goal. We're going to will it. Travel is easy. Yeah. I mean, travel is, is, is not necessarily easy. Travel is never easy overseas, but there's just a couple extra steps now. Um, that's all. Alexander mentioned the, the, the sanitary pass you have to have for the French. Mine arrived the day before we left. So I was getting a little bit nervous there. Um, and then you get over there and you find out that, yeah, they're actually asking for this thing and they asked for it quite a bit. Um, and then you find out that you have to have a PCR test to leave, to get mm. back in the U.S. You have to make arrangements for that. Um, I think the biggest thing, to, the biggest takeaway about going over to France and back this time is that we had to roll with the punches. There was different things that had to happen. And some of it we couldn't plan ahead for. We had to wait till we got there to figure it out. And that is not always necessarily a comforting feeling. You want to have everything all tied together in a neat, nice, neat bowl, yet you can't. Nope. Um, I, I think that we're seeing the end of that, though. I think we've had, had enough time now where everybody world over is beginning to, to tie the ends together. Okay, this is how it has to be. This is what we're going to do. So, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Now, I won't take up too much more of you, gen- uh, of you, you, you gentlemen's time, but I kind of want to end this on a, on a bit of a lighter note. I think Rob's going to very quickly figure out where this question's going. Alex, you you might be in the chip on in this too. Now, I have heard that the um, AEF, you know, they they sent over, I think, what, about 22 divisions fought in the Merz-Argonne. I have heard rumor tells me, ABMC tells me, that the 5th Division was in the Merz-Argonne. You sure... No comment. Are you yeah. sure? Are we, are we able to confirm that was the fifth actually there? I mean, how do we know? 
what proof do we have? Who knows? I mean, you know, outside of the fact that, you know, there's only 37 monuments, you know, every hundred feet you run into one. Out, out, other than that, you know, I'm not sure the fifth was there at all. Yeah. So, folks, this is this has been a bit of an inside joke here for a while. And I, I've come late to this joke, but and it's, it's nothing against the fifth division. Yes, the fifth division AEF was in the Merz-Argonne and they fought very well. Um, and in, in the last uh, days of the war, they, they they did participate. They they put in their full measure. Um, however, uh, unlike other divisions, they left these white ob- obelisks. Um, with a red diamond, the divisional symbol, on them pretty much everywhere they stopped. So you, <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't, I mean, you, you look. You can't swing a them. dead cat in France without hitting one. When we, <laughs> yeah. we stayed in Dunsermuse mm-hmm. and it's about 10 there right there. <laughs> in town, and then within five kilometers, there were three more <laughs> along the roadway. It's true. Um, it's true. And I, I didn't find out until, as a matter of fact, this year that I actually had a relative in World War One who was in the Fifth Division. So, just um, makes it just the best. It you. does. It, the irony is just crushing, just crushing. So we had to stop and take a picture of one of the Fifth Division memorials so I can prove once and for all, yes, the Fifth actually was in France. Yeah, so. They very much were. There's no missing it, folks. So, no, so that's awesome. So, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for, for, for taking the time out of, out of a Sunday evening. Um, God, man, thank you both for um, coming out to France, for, for meeting up, being part of this, this amazing mission. I mean, I, I, it's, it's really something to, to, to be a, a, a part of this, to, to, you know, to, to account for our, for our doughboys, um, to be a part of the Lost Battalion Walk with Jim Larney's diary. Um, but also just, uh, Rob, we've known each other for a while, um, so it was awesome to, to hang out with you. Um, Alex, it's the first time we met, but um, it's fantastic. I feel like you're instantly like one, one of us, like you were just, you know. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, re- really great to, to meet. a lot. I mean, it's it's been great working with the both of you the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So so thank you awesome. guys. Thank you so much. Um, thanks, Mark. Yeah. Thanks, thank you for, thanks for having me on here. It's been, a, it's been quite a, a plot twist for me. I've always been listening to the podcast, so to finally be here, it's 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 a little different for me, but it's awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, all right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much, and we'll. Uh, We'll be in touch, and folks, as things develop with um, with WMIA and with Lost Battalion tours, um, we you guys will you know we will be putting it out there on, in the social media world. So, all right, gentlemen, have a good evening. And you as well, sir. Thank you.